0: i
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Temple Grandin, perhaps the best-known person in the world with autism, or at least uh, she's often referred to. Dr. Grandin truly wears many, many hats. She is a fervent activist for people on the autism spectrum. Professor of animal science for a long, long time at Colorado State University, expert on animal behavior, and prolific author who maintains a backbreaking schedule of crisscrossing the country, delivering lectures, and making conference appearances. Over the years, Dr. Grandin has been a guest multiple times on Talking Animals. In addition, on two separate occasions, in 2015 and 2019, I interviewed her on stage at the 1200-seat Paramount Theater in Austin, representing in-person extended conversations with her. Today's discussion marks a return to a more traditional talking animals interview with Dr. Grant live on the radio, obviously, and perhaps less obviously, we'll be welcoming listener calls, emails, and texts if you'd like to raise a question or a comment with Dr. Grannon. She has long been a prominent proponent for the humane treatment of livestock for slaughter, having designed those systems that reflect her distinctive ability to think like animals because it's comparable to how many autistics think. Although her views and designs have made her a polarizing figure in the animal welfare realm, Dr. Grannon has also long been considered an enormously influential figure on a global level. The Emmy award-winning HBO film called Temple Grandin, and starring Claire Danes as Dr. Grannon raised her profile dramatically. We'll get into all that with Dr. Grant in just a moment. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Kim Archer, a certified trainer at Courteous Canine a Dog Training Operation in Lutz, which on Saturday is offering a pet CPR and first aid certification class. Topics covered include safety techniques when working with sick or injured animals, how to provide emergency first aid to dogs and cats in route to veterinary care, and learning about the importance of the Pet First Aid Kit and how to use the materials in it during an emergency, among other topics, including, of course, instruction of pet CPR itself. We'll hear more about this from Kim Archer later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk with Dr. Granin with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 2813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Temple Grandin back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Grandin. Uh,
0: great to be here.
1: Oh, thanks for uh, joining us again on Talking Animals. It's been a while since you've been on the show, though we have had those conversations in the meantime in Austin at Paramount Theater, so excited to be speaking with you once again. So as we noted in the introduction, you're a prolific author, which kind of understates the case, really. The number of books you've authored or co-authored is uh, monumental. So, But I thought we'd start out today's conversation with a book of yours that's not quite out yet, but reflects 50 years of your work and Livestock Facility Design and Understanding the Behavior of Cattle and Horses During Handling, and more. It's a book called The Grandin Papers. It's due out, I believe, in October, and there's a related webinar that's set for September. So I'm hoping you could give me a bit of a sneak preview of the book. What are some of the most... Well, what
0: pre- basically I've done is picked out um, uh, some of my most important scientific papers, starting with my very, very first paper that I published in 1980. This is my first scientific paper on my observations of uh, cattle handling, And one of the things that helped me in my work with cattle Handling is I'm a visual thinker. I have another book that came out real recently also called Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. I'm an extreme visual thinker. So when I first started my animal behavior work, I looked at what cattle were seeing when they were going through shoots and they would stop at shadows or reflections or a piece of string or something like that hanging down. And at the time, I didn't know that other people did not think in pictures the way I did. So my very first papers are in there. Some of my early work where we worked with zoo animals um, to train zoo animals such as antelope to voluntarily cooperate with veterinary procedures. That's something that greatly reduced stress. That was some of the early work. And then later on, on um, uh, papers I did on design of um, meat packing plant facilities, animal welfare auditing programs. It's basically a series of of papers. Another thing I'm very concerned about in animal breeding, whether it's dogs or whether it's cattle or pigs, is overselecting for single trait. You overselect an animal for single trait, like giving a bulldog a short nose, you're going to get problems with breathing. Yeah. You overselect the meat animal for just for um, production of meat. You might get lameness issues. There's always a price.
1: And so some of that was covered in some of your earlier uh, papers. And uh, and then did did you find when you were putting together uh, the grandin papers? that you, uh, looking at the scope of those uh, 40, maybe 50 years even of, of papers, that your positions on things had changed in some cases maybe significantly from an earlier paper to something that was some period of time later?
0: Well, one of the things that changed... Um, I started out strictly with an engineering approach. In fact, my first professional organization was the American Society of Agricultural Engineers. And so I thought I could totally fix animal welfare at a place like a slaughter plant with design of the I thought I could do it all with engineering. Well, it took me about 10 years to learn that you cannot do it all with engineering. Good equipment makes it a lot easier to handle animals in a low-stress manner, but it doesn't replace man training people on behavioral principles of handling animals. And there's a tendency for um, a lot of technical people to get overly optimistic about engineering can just solve all of our problems. Yes, engineering can solve a lot of problems, but you also have to have the management to go with it. And that is something, it took me about 10 or 15 years of my career to fully understand that. It's sort of like people thought, well, we put the internet in the schools, everything with the schools is going to be wonderful. Well, it's wonderful to have internet in the schools, but that did not make everything, the schools, wonderful. And that did not replace good teaching, and I can't emphasize how important good teaching is. Now, the Grandin Papers book concentrates on my livestock work. I have other publications <coughs> where I dust off.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So I think even though this show is, is primarily an animal-related show, so that'll probably be the majority of the stuff we discuss, I think, of course, it's incumbent on us to touch on some autism-related things, as we will uh, along the way. And um, and one of the things that, that actually, when you were talking about the uh, emphasis on uh, animal breeding, that, uh, that I just saw in a couple of different newspapers yesterday. It was an article published in the Toronto Globe and Mail, and then a similar piece appeared in Reuters, I think probably elsewhere, reporting that a Canadian dairy farmer is among the first in the world to breed soon-to-be-born calves that will have reduced environmental impact because these calves will, it sounds like a gag, but it's not, will burp less methane. And so it's, it has an environmental impact because all these calves will will distribute less methane than, than other cows. And I found something similar that, uh, in the UK at least, where there's a, an effort underway and I guess quite a bit of money at stake to genetically engineer low-methane sheep so I was curious, uh, given your interest in breeding, and you just touched on a moment ago, what you thought about these kinds of approaches.
0: Well, anytime you select for individual trade, always get concerned. But well, we've also learned and research has been done right here at Colorado State University with one of my colleagues on uh, Kim Stackhouse. Um, they're measuring methane, and within a pen of cattle, I was shocked to learn, this is at our experiment station, I learned that within a pen of Angus cattle, there was a 37% difference in the amount of methane burped out by those cattle on... Um, just random Angus cattle. She's probably going to look at Ranch of Origin and right now, I do not know why this pen of ordinary Angus cattle had such a variation in the amount of methane they put out. I yeah. was just shocked when I learned this, and, and the mechanism behind it's unknown at point. So but so, so far, she's documented.
1: So so far, the research that your that your colleague there has done has said, well, there's this 37 percent difference, but so far we don't know why.
0: No, they don't know why. I mean, the first thing they're going to look at probably is ranch of origin of the cattle, and it might be microbiome. It might possibly be affected by what those cattle ate before they came. Our experiment stations, but I just don't know. When I found that out, I almost fell over back because that's a huge difference, and we have to find out why. And right now, I don't know. But she has very accurate equipment for measuring it, and uh, and that's what came out. Yeah.
1: So her uh, presumably the next phase of her research will be like, hey, what is the cause of this? Oh,
0: well, that's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and you know, the thing with breeding, I don't care what the trait is, you have to be very careful when you select a single trait because they can be unintended consequence. One of the things that's happened in animals as we've bred for more and more meat is getting leg conformation issues. I like to look at genetic selection in an, in a production animal, sort of like a national budget. If I put all the genetic selection into the economy, meat, milk, or eggs, I may shortchange my infrastructure. That would be the bone structure, reproduction, maybe heart problems. But I may, so, may also shortchange my military, which is the immune function. I think there's always... And we just got to make sure that when you select for the low methane, it, it, it's not linked to some other trait we don't know about.
1: Right. So I guess that's the kind of thing that can only come out when this – because it sounds like at least the, the, the some of the research your colleague is doing and this thing I quoted that's happening with oh, the Canadian farmer.
0: Just ordinary Angus cattle, yeah. regular breeding, and in the same pen had this huge variation. Yeah. Now I'm a visual thinker so right now I'm seeing those cattle at the experiment station and a lot of people who are really good at working with animals they're the visual thinkers who often have trouble with algebra in school but they're brilliant with animals because an animal's a sensory based thinker not a word based thinker and I discuss that in my book on visual thinking which is more on definitely on the autism side of things Yeah, and with that
1: in mind, Dr. Garan, would you say that there could or or is indeed a preponderance of people that are autistic that are actually in the, working with animals and have maybe have gravitated to that for the same reason that you did, because they are visual thinkers and they have maybe a bit of a, a gift or a bent in that direction?
0: Yes, I have, I have seen that. And I also know people that work with animals that are dyslexic. I've also, when I was out working in a big plant installing equipment, I worked with people who owned metal fabrication shops that were either autistic or dyslexic or ADHD. The visual thinkers, the ones that have trouble with higher math, tend to gravitate towards animals, mechanical devices. Photography and art. Those are the four things that the extreme visual thinkers tend to gravitate towards.
1: Interesting. And uh, so I, I guess part of your long standing uh, efforts on some of these folks' behalf is to urge them to go in those directions so that they can pursue some professions or other opportunities that they might not necessarily get, but they actually have a gift that they may or may not have identified.
0: Well, that's right. I've been I've been interviewed by a lot of film crews, and I've talked to people on film crews. that are definitely autistic or dyslexic, and they gravitated towards cameras because that was something that they could be really good at. And this brings up another thing in education. A lot of kids today aren't exposed to enough stuff. How can a person determine they're a good photographer or good with animals if they're not exposed to working with animals? Or we've got people growing up today that have never used tools. Kids today are not getting exposed to enough stuff to figure out what they might gravitate towards that they can be really good at. Then you've got the mathematical kids. They're going to gravitate towards programming and engineering. And then you've got people that are word thinkers, that are totally word thinkers and probably less likely to gravitate towards the animal training if they're a complete word thinker, where they think in words. And it was a Shocked to me when I discovered in my late 30s that other people did not think in pictures the way I do.
1: And how did you make that discovery exactly?
0: Well, it was, I was at an autism conference, and I, I asked a speech therapist, when you think about a church steeple, how does it come into your mind? And I was shocked that she just said two lines, very vague two lines. I start seeing different church steeples and name off where they're located, like that's what the visual thinker does, but she just got two vague lines. Twenty thing she had almost no visual representation in her memory and that shocked
1: because what you do if i'm not not mistaken if i remember my temple grand in history is that it's almost like film clips right that's you, right you're, you're seeing if, if someone asks you the same question about a steeple you'll see that steeple but it'll be like almost like a movie as opposed to just the two lines that the, the person at that conference Oh, no,
0: that, that's right and it's also there it's sort of like those little live phone pictures you take where they just move a little bit yeah it's sort of really like that and but they're specific so my concept of what a steeple is is based on all the steeples i've seen then i can start grouping them into categories like cathedrals or chapels or new england type categories like that now there's a reason why i chose the steeple because if i ask people about their dog or their house more people can remember that but steeples are out there in the environment most people don't pay much attention to them but they're there and everybody knows what they are and they've seen them and i found that that question think about a church steeple. How does it come into your mind? Really differentiated visual thinkers from verbal thinkers, and then a lot of people are mixtures, and they'll see a steeple. It's it's still a generalized, but it has a lot more detail. In
1: it. And for people um, who are visual thinkers awesome. like yourself and others, does that change over time? Obviously, the steeples that someone sees at say twenty, uh, seen it maybe twenty years old versus it. At- Forty-five, it would be different. So, does that call up in their in their visual thinking? Like, well, what tends
0: to get called up is childhood memories and real recent memory. Now, the other thing with me with steeples, I have PowerPoint slides of steeples, so I'm seeing those because I've shown them so many times. But most people wouldn't have that. You're asking about something where i don't have powerpoint slides i tend to see childhood memories and relatively recent memories first
1: interesting that there, it sounds like there's not a whole lot in between
0: well there is i can also you know I'll dig back to stuff that's in between too
1: right but, but it, it sounds like you're you're
0: in up, ones in the childhood. Yeah.
1: But that's what I mean. It sounds like the initial impulse is childhood or something within I guess maybe a few months or whatever. But th- that that could that that could encompass several decades that maybe don't immediately come to to mind.
0: Well and then I can start sort of um going through my memory, thinking about different countries I went to, um went to Sweden and there was a wooden church with a Steeple made like a cathedral. It was kind of different. That was a long time ago. That well, was 30 years ago I went on
1: that trip. Right. So, but if someone says to you, Steeple, that that got probably added to the images that you would see in your head uh, once you visited that particular steeple, which sounded unusual well, yeah. and striking, something right? Something
0: that's like strikingly different. Yeah, to make an impression on me. Yeah, for sure. This
1: yeah. is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, I'm speaking with Dr. Temple Grandin. If you'd like to ask Dr. Granton a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at WMF.org, or text 813-433-0885. And of course, that could be animal related or it could be autism related or uh, anywhere in between. Um, so, uh, speaking to that, Dr. Grant, I know for much of your time, your work is on animals and autism, and sometimes it's interwoven, um, but clearly your work is more distinctly animal-related when it comes to, like, what we just talked about, the granite papers and the livestock industry. Yeah, well,
2: granite papers
0: are strictly um, uh, animal-related work. Yeah. And I kind of picked out some of my, you know, previous scientific articles that I thought that would be the most interest.
1: How, but how so much?
0: From my first paper in 1980 to uh, my two papers right up to two years ago. Wow! Well, oh, you know, I've got some from last year. Last year.
1: That's uh, that's quite a span, for sure. So, just day to day, what proportion of your time would you say is devoted to livestock or other animal-related stuff, and how much is more focused on autism, going to conferences, speaking on that? I mean, is there any kind of? It's
0: probably about half and a half right now. I'm still got you know students doing research. Yeah, um, <clears throat> still working on those things.
1: Okay, cool. So we've got one of our email questions says, "Thank you for your amazing work, Dr. Grannon. Are you encouraged by the generation of animal scientists coming up behind you? Are they problem solvers like yourself?"
0: Well, I'm very pleased to say that I've got three professors that are my former students. I think they're definitely uh, doing things out there to solve problems, which which I think is really good. Um, you know, there's some really good young people um, coming up in the field.
1: And um, are any of those three that you're that you're citing uh, autistic?
0: Uh, no, they are not.
1: Okay. And uh, cause I've, I've always... I had
0: some other students that I think that are autistic, but they uh, one of them was working with lab animals at one time.
1: I see. Because I would wonder if over the years of teaching college there, if people gravitate towards you to study with you because they are autistic and, and want to sort of yes. emulate you. And the... I had
0: autistic students in my livestock handling class, which I've taught for many, many years at Colorado State. And I emphasize the importance of observation with animals, but that's something really, really important. Another thing I emphasize in that class, and I think it's getting more and more important now with all the chat GPT stuff, is how do you look up original scientific sources? And I teach them how to pick out something in behavior that really is interesting to you. And then I want two journal articles off of four different scientific databases. This is Google Scholar, Web of Science, Science Direct, and uh, PubMed. And a lot of the students don't even know those scientific databases. And I think today with all the garbage that's going to end up online, it's really important for students to know how to use these data. And so I let them pick out any subject in animal behavior that interests them, and then they've got to get me journal articles and summarize them. That might be one of the most important things they learn in my class. They're also going to learn all about livestock handling. They also need to learn how to use scientific databases.
1: And just to generally work with data, just because I I would think that some of the work that's being done, if it's not supported by good sound research or data, is sort of weak and suspect. It
0: teaches them how to look up scientific journal articles yeah and that's a project I've been doing that pro- doing that project for over 10 years you know before artificial intelligence came on the scene but now with artificial intelligence it's going to be even more important for students to know how to look up use these databases to look up papers and they work for all not just animal stuff all
1: science right
0: computers everything.
1: So it just gets gets those skills owned for whatever other fields they may go into.
0: That's correct.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about some of the online stuff and, and AI, et cetera. What is your current view of social media?
0: Well, I think a lot of there's a lot of problems with you know magnifying the voices of radical stuff on both sides of a lot of issues. Um, a new study just came out that, you know, if you temporarily change people's news feeds, it didn't change their views, but it was a real short term study. But back when when social media first started, I gave a talk at the Cannes. Cattlemen's Association, and I said, the problem we're going to have with social media is it magnifies radical voices on both sides of any issue
1: prophetic, I guess, right?
0: Yep, that was the, That was when it first started, that was the, and, and this is even more reason why it's important. Okay, let's say there's something said on social media about some scientific stuff, and since it's controversial, I'm not going into any detail, but some scientific thing and the controversial stuff, well, then people can go on the, into those databases and um, find scientific papers. And is what was said on social media BS, or is it really true? In other words, teach students how to go back and look at original sources.
1: No, that's so valuable, because, again, there's just so much compromised material and information presented in so many settings now. So again, if you're not skeptical inherently, or you're not doing basic stuff that you just described before about uh, determining you know, what? what's the data? One of the
0: things I found when I polled the students in my last class in, in this spring is only about 20% of them even knew that the scholarly databases existed. And the other problem we have is kids growing up today totally removed the world of practical. I've got students in class now that don't know how to use a ruler. Wow. They're not being taught any practical hands-on stuff. This is getting into stuff I discussed in my visual thinking book that came out just last October.
1: Yeah, that's taking things to a much further step because I know in some past conversations that you and i've had you've addressed your concern that public schools seem to be removing like shop classes and other hands-on instruction do you feel your concerns in that way have been heard and recognized or do you think it's sort of getting better by any oh, chance people, or what
0: you no know, educators are putting some of these classes back in okay but there's still some problems and one of the problems is a lot of times they won't let a special ed kid take shop because they're worried about accident but i work with people who are who own that would have been special ed kids. And the other problem is, is that they're putting these things back in, but they're not doing it earlier. We need to be hooking young kids, elementary school kids that, you know, building things out of wood or something. Obviously not going to do welding with with uh, elementary school kids. Yeah. But we need to be introducing to elementary school kids that building things is a fun thing to do. And, you know, and also they need to be exposed to music and to art, and cooking, sewing. I did embroidery in third grade. In fourth grade, I was sewing costumes with my toy sewing machine. I love the doing. Kids are not having these experiences today.
1: Yeah, some of that, I guess, is what's going on in school. Some of that, it seems like. I mean, you famously talked about the incredible influence and difference your mom made in terms of insisting that you do certain things, try certain things, get engaged in a certain way, and how much well, of a difference right. that made.
0: Well, and the thing is, we've got too many kids. I mean, we have got, got this apartment building right next to where I live, a really nice playground. I very seldom see kids in that playground. So it's all fenced in. It's really nice. I didn't even hardly know that kids lived in that building until I saw the school bus unload them.
1: Wow. So what do you think that reflects?
0: Well, I think we know kids need to get out and do things. So when they get out and do hands-on things, they find out they really like it. And one of the things is they could be doing is, you know, learning how to train animals. That's something they could be doing.
1: That makes me kind of think of a question I had for you that I've thought about off and on over the various years that we've talked. I haven't really brought it up specifically because some of it's just kind of, I guess, kind of a form of speculation, but. Do you ever ponder how different your life might be if you hadn't spent that summer on the Arizona ranch? That's, that was obviously such a, por- you know, formative experience for you. Um, but it was kind of ser- uh, serendipitous. Would,
0: if I had not gone to the ranch, probably would have um, um, not gone into the cattle industry. Yeah. I probably would have been doing just sort of uh, freelance uh, rebuilding stuff in people's kitchens and stuff like that. Would have been stuff I would have been doing.
1: So, more like design and uh, like kind of, kind of interior design or architect?
0: Well, and just, I mean, I worked on, I remodeled our own, own kitchen in our own house. And then during the 70s, I had a friend, we went in and we built a wall in the house and, and, and built a bunch of stuff in the house. I, I would have been out doing that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, because I'm just wondering if, if it's the kind of thing that seemed like so much of an almost predetermined thing that, that if that opportunity at the ranch hadn't existed, would you have still found your way there through another means, possibly?
0: Possibly, but I think I would have more likely have gone just towards going out and building stuff, yeah. you know, freelance. I think that's more likely what would have happened because at that time, I was doing those kinds of things. I had a sign painting business at the time, too, and I did that some through the 70s. Now, you go out and there's no hand-painted signs anymore. I painted signs for the carnival and the... 1970s and now you go to the carnival every sign's made on a computer now it's kind of sad no more hand-painted signs.
1: but it also sounds like you were kind of entrepreneurial when you were younger
0: well that's right and and i would have probably you know you know gone on you know just done some specialized dolzing stuff
1: so here's another email that came in that well i'll just present it it's my opinion this this emailer says that the increase in autism is directly related to the increase in the use of chemicals in our world what is your opinion
0: I think a lot of the increase is due to increased detection. I can think of people I worked with, people that are now my age or maybe 10 years younger, people in their 60s and 70s that I worked with that were definitely autistic, but they were undiagnosed. See, what I think is happening now is you're getting more of the kids that never had speech delay diagnosed with autism. When the autism diagnosis first started uh, in, in around the 80s, you had to have speech delay to be labeled autistic. In other words, no speech delay, no autism label.
1: That was the only that was the only measure it sounds like.
0: Well, no, they had other measures. But that was, that was the chief one. But basically it had to be onset before age 3 with speech delay plus autistic symptoms. Then in the early 90s they put in the Aspergers, which is basically Socially awkward with no speech delay. So that added a bunch of, of uh, people. Then in 2013, they combined both of those. So now you're going all the way from speech delight and some very, very severe cases to somebody who's just socially awkward with no speech delay all put together in a big spectrum. And,
1: and it sounds like you think that combination and uh, maybe the the, the the spectrum that resulted explains from that-, that
0: big, a big, huge amount of the increase I have grandparents come up to me all the time that say, "I found out I was autistic when the kids got diagnosed." Yeah, I've had that happen over and over and over again at meetings. So I think most of it is going to be increased detection. Also, a lot of in, uh, kids that might have been labeled mentally retarded in the past are getting going into autism programs because that's where they can get services. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, interesting. So the incidents hard to really say, but it's uh, the detection has shot so far up.
0: The detection and the and the and the guidelines have changed. Yeah, You see, it isn't like tuberculosis, where you either have tuberculosis or you don't. And nobody's changed the guidelines for diagnosing tuberculosis, where the guidelines for diagnosing autism have changed and broadened the uh, people that would be eligible for it.
1: So a lot of these concerns about, like, for example, the uh, emailer's question about chemicals. Of course, you often hear about uh, vaccines. Let's
0: go to scientific databases PubMed and Google Scholar. Look it up yourself. To That's see. to controversial. But uh, you, can, you can use the PubMed database. You can use the Google Scholar database. And uh, you can find out.
1: Yeah. Again, but this
0: I'm is... I'm going to guess that 90% of the increase is increased diagnosis. And a lot of it's due to... Broadening,
1: greatly broadening of the spectrum. Interesting, yeah. This is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, again, this is, uh I'm speaking with Dr. Temple Grandin. If you'd like to ask Dr. Grandin a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So Dr. Grandin, when you were talking about combining sort of uh, speech delay, social awkwardness, and then Asperger's, et cetera, made me think, I believe there's some confusion about where adhd fits in and all this
0: oh yes and there's i'm there's a lot of autism symptoms crossover you I know mean, if you kind of kind of look at the literature and i say 30 percent of the clinical so-called clinical symptoms crossover there's also brain scan stuff that crosses over and genetic stuff that crosses over uh, they they have differences but there's also lots of crossover i have talked to many many parents where the diagnosis kept switching back and forth between autism and ADHD. Now, I can't emphasize enough if you've got a five-year-old not or a three-year-old kid that's not talking. You need to be getting into early therapy quickly.
1: Well, again, you sort of, as many people who know your story well, didn't start talking until, I think it was three and a half?
0: Four. But four? Really oh. fluent till oh, okay. four. Okay. And then slow to respond, you know, through age four
1: but again you as we talked touched on earlier in the conversation your mom was pivotal in like recognizing there was something that needed to be done and then taking all kinds of steps to
0: well that's right and then some of this that also helped was 1950s upbringing where manners were taught in a much more structured way like We'd have a party and mother and plus all the other kids in the neighborhood when they were seven or eight had to put their party clothes on and greet the guests and shake hands with them and serve the snacks. Um, you were taught, social skills were taught in a much more structured way to all children in fifty. That also was really helpful.
1: So the fact that that's less of a commonplace practice these days, you think maybe helps t- complicate or, or opt-
0: up? With autistic kids, nothing's instinctual. Mm-hmm. You have to teach them. You got to greet Mr. Jones. and, shake hands with them it's sort of like teaching somebody social skills in a foreign country
1: because that helps overcome the inherent social awkwardness that many of them experience well, you,
0: have to, you just have to learn you know yeah. somebody shake hands with them look them in the eye you just learn it yeah now there's certain kinds of rapid chit chats that people will do in, in noisy environments like restaurants that i simply can't follow i don't have the processor speed and then i've had to learn things like don't talk somebody's head off yakking on and on and on about my favorite subject
1: <laughs> and what are some of your favorite subjects?
0: Well, right now I love to talk about weather problems at the airport.
1: <laughs> oh my God. That brings me to another question. Your schedule seems super demanding lectures conferences other appearances and with all the travel downright grueling so i can only imagine when there's traffic uh, travel delays and whatever but if i'm not mistaken you're now i think around 75 so what what drives you how do you kind of still maintain that kind of pace
0: well i make sure i get enough sleep It's one of the things And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I just had a five-hour delay on a flight just the other day. Another flight, a three-hour delay, and and the pilot's almost timed out. And then the pilot called up dispatch, and and dispatch said, well, you can go now. They're like, hey, table's up, we're leaving. And we were getting ready to taxi back to the gate, unload the plane, and cancel the flight. Mm. (sighs) That just happened just the other day. Uh, This weather's just so unpredictable. Yeah. I've got three million miles on the airlines. I'm sure. Stuff that's been going on the last five years at the airport with weather, it is just crazy.
1: Yeah. And uh, as I recall from one of our other conversations, that reminds me, too, that I think when you're traveling or, or actually when you're home, too, it probably doesn't make any difference. Uh just about more like when you do it or where you do it. Aren't you big into, like, uh, crunches and other kinds of uh, exercise that...
0: Um, yeah, I find that I've been... Uh, I find that it helps. I do uh, sit-ups. I do push-ups. I do back rolls. I yanked my rotator cuff on a, on a shuttle bus door of all things i have to worry about mundane things the doctor told me i'd to have surgery i found some exercises online and i think my arm's gonna be okay i have to be very careful how i use it
1: yeah wow sorry But to I hear did,
0: that i know i was getting off the stupid shuttle and and somehow got my elbow caught in a handle and as i stepped down it just Jerked it back, and not to worry about the mundane stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. That sounds like when I'm sense. around
0: when I'm around cattle, I'm super careful. I haven't gotten hurt around cattle.
1: So speaking of cattle, I
0: found exercises, but I found exercises online for the rotator cuff, and uh, it it uh, helped it. And I was very careful not to do the move that hurt it. Mm. Very careful. Like I started opening doors with my left hand because heavy doors pulling them open, it was hurting it. So I stopped using my right hand to open doors. That's another thing I think that helped it. You see, that's visualizing. I was very careful to not do the moves that hurt it yeah. for four months.
1: So you were a step ahead probably by by visualizing, hey, if I don't I do this.
0: And I said I've got to not do this certain move, like putting a coat on and bending my thing backwards bending my arm backwards hurt and so then i figured learn how to put the coat on get the bad arm in it first in the sleeve first and it's um it's a whole lot better i i still was at coming home from the airport the other day and i started putting my right hand up to hold the strap on the shuttle and i go no 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 no, no." you only use the right hand to hold the pole not the strap where you reach up (laughs) um you see now as i talk to you about that i am seeing it i'm seeing my hand my right hand going up to reach the strap and i'm going no 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 i've got to hold the pole I J- can't be – I can't have that shuttle jerking my arm when it, holding that strap up in the air on the shuttle.
1: So it's almost like a yeah, – like
0: I'm, I'm seeing it right now.
1: Yeah, like a cautionary video clip of some kind, it sounds like.
0: Well, i I, um, seeing it now. Is I, I almost reached for the strap, and then I go, no, 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 don't do that.
1: Yeah, so – that that imagery protected you from actually injuring yourself further or causing yourself more well, pain. Well,
0: yeah, and I, and I don't think the whole thing. I read a whole bunch of stuff online, and, and then I then as it started to heal, some I started doing these exercises yeah. very carefully. And I didn't do them when it was first sore, but I, I you know I think visualizations helped it. Um, now I I know enough medicine to know when a nerve is actually pinched, mm. and you could lose the nerve function. Well, I made sure that did not happen.
2: Yeah.
1: I
0: know those symptoms. I actually, you know, I know something about nerves.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: yeah. Because you can kill a nerve in an arm if you're not careful.
1: Right, no, if there's repeated damage of that yeah, same that's kind. very,
0: very serious. Yeah. No, I never even came close to having that happen.
1: All right. Well, it sounds like you're you're taking good care of it along the way, even though it's... Well,
0: I, you know, I'm doing my exercises, and, and uh, one thing that keeps me going on some of the autism stuff is I have parents come up to me, and they say, well, your book or one of your talks, or we listen to a talk online or something. My kid really helped my kid. I got him out doing things. Because I'm seeing too many autistic kids today that are getting so baby they're not shopping by themselves.
1: Yeah, that was, basic, that, was, that was...
0: Basic stuff they're not doing.
1: Yeah, that you know, for some 20 years, we've been having all kinds of conversations... On the radio, on stage, in person, etc., and we've talked about some of this in the earlier years. You made it really clear, as you kind of touched on even just now, that you felt autistic children were not being pushed hard enough to speak, well, to engage with.
0: Not, there's certain you got to push them. I call it stretching, but you don't chuck them into something they can't handle. And let me give you some examples of jobs you don't push them into: a super busy, crazy McDonald's takeout window at lunch, mm-hmm. a chaotic Christmas wrapping station. Uh, during the holidays store you know chaos in a clothing store during the holidays those sort of things those are jobs that all failed. you want to avoid those rapid multitasking and then another thing i found is i don't remember long strings of verbal information so if i'm getting a job at walmart on how to close out and i got to close out the cash register i need to write down a checklist of steps or like a pilot's checklist for how you close out the cash register I need that pilot's checklist.
1: Yeah, checklists, I think, just generally are very helpful, right, in that realm? yeah,
0: checklists and avoiding the chaotic multitasking job and checklists for tasks that involve sequence. You know, those are, no, we don't, we don't, I call that chucking them in the deep end of the pool, and we don't take that kid and chuck him on that takeout window that's super crazy busy. And then I thought of an accommodation that a local McDonald's made. The autistic lady was running the cash register, and when the store got super busy they they switched her to cleaning tables mm, you was know, a very simple thing they did in that store
1: right just to, to ensure that she wouldn't become overwhelmed and therefore well, there'd right. be a problem
0: they, yeah uh, well I can, you know my mind thinks in specific examples and and uh, I remember going into our bookstore which normally would be a super good job for somebody on the spectrum but at christmas time they had a wrapping table for christmas presents and books it was an absolute chaos <laughs> And I looked at that and I go, that's where you don't put them. And I'm seeing it right now in yeah. our local bookstore.
1: Yeah. Well, some of it's just, I guess, probably common sense about not overwhelming someone that, you know, might have a tendency to be more easily well, overwhelmed. I
0: think common sense is visual thinking. Mm. And I'm seeing something like a grape on the floor at the supermarket. And if somebody steps on that, they're likely to slip and fall. So they clean up the grapes that fell on the floor.
1: Interesting. You see, that's
0: yeah. a very simple example of common sense. Yeah. I mean, I see things. I'm seeing another thing about risk. I'm now seeing a cup of water. I can't believe somebody did this on a plane. Put a cup of water on their open laptop while a plane is flying. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just asking for
1: trouble, right?
0: Laptop. They hit one bump or the person in front of them puts the seat back. That laptop is ruined with the water. Yeah. I'm seeing it right now. I was in an aisle seat halfway back on the, um, and uh, we were on, I would have been on the uh, right side of the plane. I was in aisle seat. He was in the middle seat, a full flight. And I'm seeing that little plastic cups the airlines give out on the open laptop, on the tray table. I'm seeing it right now. Yeah. Well. I don't think that was very good common sense.
1: Yeah. Even if I can't see it as vividly as you can, <clears throat> I see that's disaster waiting to happen.
0: It was disaster waiting to happen. I was scared I'd bump him accidentally and wreck his computer.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, Dr. Grandin, we have kind of just about reached the uh, end of our time. I really enjoy speaking you. I want to give a couple of websites and some other information. So grandin.com is typically where the livestock. livestock. What's that?
0: And then grandin.com is my livestock website. Right. Templegrandin.com is my autism website.
1: Correct, yeah. And then also, speaking of social media, you have a, it looks like a pretty active Facebook page as well as yeah, a Twitter but Twitter that, feed. Uh, yeah,
0: no, no, uh, I've got the new book coming out, The Grandin Papers. Yeah. Also, I've got my book came out less than a year ago called visual thinking the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures patterns and abstractions
1: and and those are highlighted on TempleGrandin.com and, right. uh, and and also you know, Grandin.com. Also
0: amazon and, and
1: Right, no, but I just right. mean about where people can find out more about the books and then see if they'd like to go ahead and purchase it or order it or whatever. There's yeah, information on right. each of those, yeah. So, Dr. Yeah. Granite, thank you again for making the time to join us on Talking Animals. As always, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very kindly.
0: Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, yeah, bye. Bye-bye.
1: In a moment, I'll talk with Kim Archer of Curious Canine, the dog training outfit in Lutz, which this Saturday, August 12th, is offering a pet CPR and first aid certification class. Getting trained in CPR remains a timely topic, including now on how to provide CPR to your pooch or your kitty. Plus, all kinds of topics of pet first aid will be taught in Saturday's course. learn more about this when Kim Archer joins us in just a moment here on Talking Animals. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Roman Danilo, doing a piece called Animals One in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. time
3: for those. It's nice to be here. I'm li- living out in uh, uh, BC though. I live out in uh, supernatural British Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> Although I was pooped on by a bird the other day. Yeah, man, and it was the second time in one month. So I said, that is it, man. I'm getting these birds back. Let me tell you, you gotta stand outside for a long time with your pants down like this before a bird comes <laughs> randomly <they're> flying through. <laughs> I did, I waited it out, right? Took about two days. Finally a sparrow comes whipping through. Boom! I nailed him, right? (laughs) Clipped him on the wing, he spun off and hit the curb. I was like, yeah, wash that off, my friend. (laughs) It's very satisfying. Very satisfying indeed. So because of that, I've decided to get all the animals back for the things they're doing to us. Oh yeah, man, I'm out there. I'm humping dogs' legs, huh? (laughs) I'm ignoring cats, sure. (laughs) I'm sucking the blood out of mosquitoes, you're going to be itchy in the morning, my friend. I'm baffling the Sasquatch with a blurry photo of myself. I'm selling whale CDs of me making annoying noises and passing it off as music. I've got a pet now, I've never had a pet before. i got a cat. And I was very concerned because I got a lot of germ issues. My friends tell me, don't worry, Roman. Uh, cats are very fussy when it comes to hygiene. Right? But my cat likes to lick its own ass and drink out of the toilet. If you ask me, they're not fussy enough. I'd say that's rather carefree when it comes to hygiene. What do you say? Cats are more like risk takers. If I sat around licking my ass all day, you wouldn't call me fussy. No, you wouldn't call me at all. It'd be fine because I'd be licking my own ass. What do I want to talk to you for? Besides, how do you hold the phone, you
1: know what <laughs> i That was Roman Daniel with well, a piece called Animals 1 in today's comedy corner taken from an appearance on Canadian television. Now it's time to speak with Kim Archer of Courteous Canine about the pet CPR and first aid certification class they're offering this Saturday, August 12th to fill us in. Let's welcome Kim Archer to Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Kim.
2: Hi, Pleasure to
1: be here. Thank you so much for joining us on Talkie Ammo. So let's start with a brief overview of Courteous Canine. I picture sort of a group of dogs having very polite exchanges, lots of please and thank you, but that's probably not really it.
2: (laughs) I think that's part of the goal, you know. Okay. uh, We are a dog training facility in Loop, Tampa. Sorry, excuse my voice. I'm recovering from COVID.
1: Oh, geez. We're a dog
2: training facility, and we're totally force-free. So, you know, the goal is we're positive reinforcement-based. We don't use any, like, harsh punishments or anything. And then there's also a doggy daycare. Um, We have training classes. We have uh, behavior. So, you know, when dogs are really needing that extra help, we have behavior that can help. Um, So, I am a certified professional dog trainer, Knowledge assessed by CCPDT. I do board and trains mainly, but we have all sorts of trainers. We're all either certified or trying to be certified under the mentorship of a certified trainer. That's
1: great. Sounds like a place to go if you're just trying to get your dog trained for the first time or if you're running into a kind of a problem or an issue to try to clarify and help solve that. Sounds like that's that's the kind of place you want to be able to consult.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So because of some high-profile incidents in recent months, including, obviously, LeBron Jameson, Bronnie, people are being urged to learn CPR, but that's learning how to administer human-to-human. Human. We're here, of course, today to discuss a CPR class with a different emphasis. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how commonly that, that class is taught? Or, or sought out by others also?
2: Yeah, I mean, so we recently started um, having it at our own location. Uh, so pet emergency education kind of comes in to our classroom and they hold it and, you know, we provide the space. Um, so I think, you know, the how frequently we hold the class does kind of depend uh, on the demand, but, you know, if anyone wants to, go to a future class and isn't able to go to this one, they could always go to our website, courteouscanine.com and sign up for our newsletter. And anytime we had the class, we would definitely have it on there. Okay, Um, But yeah, of course, it's so important. It's really uh, common that you might need, you know, even just like first aid, people don't realize how different it can be, how there's medicines that we have that we use every day that you can't give your dog. And especially if you're going to be just like, Out in the wild with your dog, you don't know if the dog's going to run up to you and hurt your dog or, you know, you're at a park. You need need to know this information. It could, you know, be vital at any moment. You have no idea.
1: So give me a a sample of one or two topics that are likely to be covered in Saturday's class.
2: Yeah, so, of course, CPR is a huge thing, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of different emergency situations of, like, What do you do if you don't have this? Like, you might need to figure out how to use, like, a leash to muzzle your dog so they don't hurt themselves more. Um, What do you do if your dog, you know, like, ingests a poison? Or um, how do you, you know, like, stop the bleeding? Uh, Dogs aren't very... I guess they're not very willing to let you do first aid like people Mm, might need to understand, you know, like restraint and um, how to keep them comfortable. How to not get hurt yourself is a big one because they know what's going on. They might try to bite you because they're in pain.
1: For sure. No, this sounds so important, especially about, like, deciding when to go to the vet and then what to do en route, like if the dog is clearly injured or been hurt somehow or not uh, just clearly not feeling well. I mean, just transporting and making sure the dog stays safe and comfortable. I mean, it just seems like there's so many elements to this that is really helpful that we've all, as people who live with animals, face, like, what should we do? And this seems to answer a lot of those questions.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So let's, uh, before we run out of time here, Kim, let's uh, address, okay, we've mentioned, of course, that it's Saturday, this Saturday, August 12th. I think it's 5 to 8 p.m., and it's at Curtius Canine itself, correct?
2: Yes.
1: And and the address of that is, I think, 3414 Melissa County Way in Lutz? Yes. So if people want to find out more, is there a um, website and or a social media page where they could find out some specifics about the class if they wanted to pursue registering or just getting more details?
2: Yes. So... I'm sorry, I don't know the exact link right offhand. How about we'll just post something? We'll just post something on Curtis Cannon's social media. Okay, so fair enough. Go on our Facebook, then we'll post something today and okay. you can go click
1: on it. That's great. Okay, well, Campbell, thank you so much. Good luck with the class and then thanks for joining us today on Talking Animals.
2: Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure.
1: All right, so we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMF. Stay tuned for uh, Slice of Life, the wonderful new show hosted by Randy Zimmerman. After that, it's Music with Jim Bannon and Cassie and uh, Robin. And um, we'll be back next Wednesday at 11 a.m. on Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Thanks so much for listening. NPR News Next and then Slice of Life. Thanks.